Oh, Jesus, this is a day that you have made, and your scriptures tell us to rejoice and be glad in it. And Lord, for many of us, that's difficult because there's so much, so many things, God, that bring sorrow and despair and discouragement and worry and fear. And as we look out at our world and even right now, God, as um, many of us are trying to figure out what to do about school this year with our children, God, there's just so many things that uh, make it really difficult for us to see that this is a day to rejoice in. And so, God, for those of us who are uh, walking with you, believe in you, trust you, God, would, would today's uh, time together help firm up that confidence that you are God and you are Lord and you are Savior and you have a plan and you will make a way where there is no way and you will bend and shape all the things going on for our good and your glory. So, God, would, would today be a day that builds deep resolve for us as Christians? Now, God, for us in this— um, in this day that really struggle with wondering whether or not you're good or real or loving, God, would today, Lord, be a day that through your scriptures we could get some real understanding about who you say you are and who Mary says you are in the, in the scriptures? And would we be able to make some really informed, educated decisions on whether or not we should trust you? And God, my hope is that we could come to the conclusion that you are trustworthy and you are worthy of our attention and our worship and our trust. But God, only you can do that, Holy Spirit. Only you can make that happen. So would you please, please, please have your way in, in this time together. Would you speak your words through your scriptures and would they penetrate our hearts would you give us supernatural attention span? Supernatural curiosity. God, would you create some kind of sponge inside of us that we just gather this information about you, process that information, and respond in exactly the way that you would see fit, which would be that we could trust you fully. So God, this is your day. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. And part of that is opening up your scriptures and learning more about you. So please have your way, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Good to see you all. Um, if you're brand new with us or you've been trekking along either way, we're still in the Gospel of Luke. Um, going to be there for a while. If you're brand new and you go, well, what's a gospel and what's Luke? And gospel is just another word for the good news, meaning this is news worthy of rejoicing and being glad. And um, essentially what the gospels are, they're the first part of the New Testament. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all written in the first century. And they were all written very specifically to kind of um, highlight, celebrate, in detail, Jesus' life. So they're just biographies about Jesus' life, and they're kind of written for different audiences. And we've been uh, reading through the Gospel of Luke because uh, Luke is a brilliant man. He was a doctor turned sci a doctor and scientist turned historian, uh, investigative journalist, and he uh, basically gave up his medical practice to to go and study who Jesus was. Right. So he was an outsider. He wasn't a Jew. He was like many of us, a Gentile, uh, very. Um, knowledgeable and academic, lots of education, lots of experience, and this guy, randomly, his name's Theophilus, he shows up in the beginning of the, uh, the first chapter of Luke, um, literally hires Luke, right? Pays him a fellowship, right? Hires Luke to go do this research and study to, to kind of discover one thing. And it tells us in the very beginning of Luke, and Luke says this, that, that for Theophilus, that he would have certainty of the things 
that he's been taught. And the reason we've been t- drawn to this gospel is if Luke is writing it to bring certainty to people who are uncertain that I can't think of a better thing to cover right now in light of our complicated, crazy, concerning world. And if you're not a Christian or a Christian, I think one thing we'd all kind of agree to is we all, 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 would love to have some certainty. Love to have some certainty about what's going on in our world. And um, the other thing that's really neat about this idea of certainty is what we're really trying to sort through and find is truth, right? As you read the news, uh, uh, listen to the news channels, hear the conversations, read the Facebook posts, there is just so much in there that you go, I don't think that's true. Is that true? Is that real? Is that not? And there's just this reality that there's so much stuff that we're not even sure if it's true or real. And all of us, and that certainty would really like to have truth. And Jesus makes a pretty profound statement when he walks on this planet. He says that he's the truth and the way and the life, right? And no one gets to the Father but through him. So if we're looking for truth and certainty, it comes from Jesus. And so if that's the case, it makes sense. If that's his declaration and that's who we should, you know, hitch our hopes to, tether ourselves to, Jesus, right? Uh, uh, Jesus who said he was God, said you could trust him, said he was Savior, then dies. And then history captures the fact that he comes back to life to prove that he's actually God. And then... um, if Jesus does all those things and we should tether ourselves to that, we got to go, should we do that or not? Because there's implications for your family, your job, your workplace, your marriage, the way you fill out your tax forms, all those things if Jesus is actually Lord. If that's true. And so Theophilus, wondering the same thing, hires Luke. Luke goes and puts together all this research, right? He uh, would have gone and sat down with the eyewitnesses in the first century. He would have gathered all the written documents, and he would have gone and listened to all the oral testimony about Jesus. And then he gathered it all to put together this orderly, is what he says, this chronological uh, story of Jesus's life. That's his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Why? So that we could have certainty in him. And so we've been kind of slowly going through this. It's going to take us a while. It's 1,151 verses of scripture. We're not covering all those today. Don't worry. I'm only going to cover 11 verses today. But 1,151 verses about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And what's really neat, 568 of those direct, direct quotations, direct citations from Jesus himself. So Luke's going to gather all this information and present to us in an orderly fashion the story of who Jesus is. And he's going to make some claims that Jesus Jesus is real, and he's God, and he's loving, and where there was no way, he made a way. So Luke charts out and starts the story. So we've been just kind of following along, and what's interesting is we are now in week five. Now we're going to be, we've been about 45, 46 verses through Luke's writing, and what's so crazy about all this, he wants us to trust in and believe and have certainty in Jesus but we're almost through the first chapter and we'll get through the first chapter and Jesus will still not be on this earth, right? All this stuff is happening kind of pre-Jesus. Now, he, we find out last week he's conceived, right? But it's so complicated. He's conceived to a virgin. Holy Spirit's the dad. And you go, oh, this just hurts my head. It doesn't even make sense. And so Luke, wanting us to have certainty, starts with a story and he's going to walk us through. Now, one of the things that I just would acknowledge in all this is... Um, it's been a lot of words from me, from the scriptures, for me for sure, lots of words. And we keep saying that, hey, we want to have certainty and keep talking about how you can have certainty. But many of you are going, but how? Like, I, I, need, I need a next step, a next step for certainty, okay? A next step. Like, tell me what I do to start getting some certainty. I don't, I'm, I'm tired of waiting. And, oh, I, I, I need to actually physically do something. So you're, um, 
looking for some, some direct, you know, steps. You know, it's kind of this. It's not preaching. You're not going, I don't need more ought to's, right? You ought to do this. You ought to do this. I need how to's, right? Like how to, what is exactly should we do next in terms of seeking and find certainty in, in this crazy world? And here's the really neat thing. Today, today, week five, we're going to give you some how to's, not some ought to's, but I'm going to need you to listen and stay with me, okay? Because I'm going to tell you the way by which you find certainty, and many of you are going to go, oh, that doesn't sound too appealing, right? And if you're not, not a believer, don't believe in these things, what I'm about to tell you is going to sound even stranger, okay? So let me, let me make a couple uh, statements, okay? And then I'm going to work backwards in them. So don't cut me off, okay? Don't, or, sorry, I'm from the South. Cut off. I mean, turn off and go to something else to stay, okay? I promise it's worth your time. So you ready for this? You want to know how you find certainty? In other words, how do we eliminate worry in the middle of a world that there's plenty of worry to be had, right? And here's what I'll tell you. You ready? Worship is your solution to worry, right? Worship is your solution to worry. You're like, yeah, does that mean I sing songs? What do you mean by that? Oh, gosh, there it is. Is he going to tell me the way I worship is the right checks to the church? I don't know. Worship, though. Stay with me, okay? Worship is your solution to worry. And you ready? Here's another nice, cute, pithy statement. Other part of certainty is not just that you want to not worry. You actually don't want to be in pain any longer, right? There's so much pain in this world, okay? Worship is your solution to worry, right? And pain, uh, uh, the way that we deal with pain is this. Praise is our solution to pain. Worship, solution to worry. Got a lot of uh, worry, then the solution is worship. Uh, got a lot of pain, the solution is praise. Pa- praise is the, you know, one of the P, prescription for pain, right? So we got those two things and and you're going, oh man, what does this mean? Does this mean I got to sing more songs? I don't really like to sing. I got a bad voice. It's weird. It's weird. Dudes stand up and sing and raise their hands and sing to this imaginary God. Oh, don't tell me that that's what you need me to do. Like all those kind of things, right? And so, so I can understand where at first glance, you go, ah, oh, worship. Some of you are like, yeah, that's right. I get it. And some of you have experientially understood that. And you're like, yep, that's it. You're dialed in. But many of us are going, ah, oh, really? And in fact, for many of us, when you hear about heaven, one of the, like, the weird things is you go, I keep hearing when I get to heaven, I'm going to put on some robe and just sing all day. Just sing all day, like in a choir. I don't want to sing in a choir, right? And so, got these, like, misconceptions about what worship is and what uh, heaven will look like. And so, worship, okay, is your solution for worry, okay? And so, let me offer this, just in fairness, just listen real quick. Um, the reality is, you already do worship. So it's not like you're going, I refuse to worship. Worship is not what I want to do. You already are worshiping. In fact, in fact, hear me out. Um, the reason for your uncertainty in this world is actually a result of what you worship, right? And so for many of us, most of us, one of the things we worship is comfort, right? You don't want to be rich. You just want to be comfortable. I mean, you don't want to have to depend on anyone or anybody else. You want to know that your cupboards are full. You want to know you have clean clothes. You want to know that, that you have a backup generator in case the power goes out. Many of you have that experience last week, and you spent the premium on the generator, right? Because we just, we just want comfort, right? Or another one that we really like is security, right? We just want to know we're safe. We want to arrive sometime way out in the future safely at death. That's kind of our, kind of our big goals in life. You thought about that? One of our big goals in life is just to arrive safely at death sometime in the distant future, to get there finally with no pain and no sorrow and then just kind of pass away. Like that is the big anticlimactic crescendo, right? So many of us, we uh, worship comfort security and those things come in the form of money or things. And, and all of a sudden, in the middle of this chaotic world, you are now 
figuring out whether or not you have enough money, enough things, enough safety. Many of us, many of us have already calculated how, how much money and how, much, how many things we have and how long we could survive if you lose your job, right? If your, your workplace shuts down, right? Because here's what we're doing. We're, we, we see those things, job, comfort, security, as these things that actually sustain us. And much of your uncertainty is because you're kind of peering into the future. Maybe you're playing false prophet. I don't know, right? But you're peering into the future and uh, concerned about whether or not your current trajectory can be sustained in the future, right? And you go, oh, yep, just uncertain. So I just would say, those things that you put your hope in, your stock in, those are just things you worship, right? Many of you are devastated because of uh, family relationships, right? Maybe your marriage is a mess and it creates all sorts of uncertainty and pain. The reason being is maybe you put your hope and your joy and your peace and your confidence and your security and your comfort into a relationship, right? And now that relationship's taking a dive and all of a sudden you go, well, that's really creating some real pain for me, right? So you're, we're already worshiping already. And that's why I love telling you Seth Godin's um, definition for anxiety, which is just failing in advance. And so what we're doing is we're taking the things that we cling to, that we focus on, that we worship, and we're imagining the possibility of not having those in the future, kids uh, growing up out of your house, whatever those things are, and all of a sudden, all this uncertainty. So you're already worshiping. In fact, the things that you worship are the things that created this anxiety for you, and that uncertainty you, you feel, right? Like it, it's kind of part of what we're already wrestling with. So it's actually worship in many ways, that are, are, that's creating these new levels of uncertainty for you right now, right? So maybe you worship your uh, schedule or your calendar or your free time or your ability to work out each day, your ability to hang out with people uh, each day, your ability to connect, whatever those things are. All, all really, really neat things, but they can't be the penultimate. They can't be the m most valuable thing because when those things get taken away from you, what does it do? It creates anxiety. It creates worry. It creates pain. So we're already worshiping. So the reality is that what we're worshiping actually is part of the reason we feel the anxiety and the pain that we're already in. So worship right, is your solution for worry. Now, when I use the word worship in terms of all the other things, let me, let me give you another word that I think probably is more accurate to all the other things besides God. And here's what it is. It's idolatry, right? Because there is only one thing, one being, God himself, who is worthy of that kind of worship. Now, as we think about worship and our response to worship, Christian, non-Christian, all those kind of things, here's there's kind of two ways that we go about it, okay? Uh, first one would be the, the bottom-up approach, right? So you, you survey the world, you see all the circumstances in the world, right? Pain, sorrow, poverty, sickness, illness, injustice, Right? And so when I prayed in the beginning, this is the day that you have made, let us rejoice and be glad. And like, like, this is the idea that today is the day that we should rejoice. And you go, well, I don't know how we rejoice. Read the news. I know a friend who's really struggling. Think about all the pain and the sorrow that's in this world. So the, the bottom-up approach is, yeah, 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 okay. I'm looking around, and it's hard for me to understand that there is a good and gracious God in the middle of all the chaos that's around us. Right? Good and gracious God. And, and so as you do the bottom-up approach, you're collecting all the, the testimonies, right? You're collecting all the data from the bottom and then making some assessments about God's worthiness of worship. And as you do, as we do, it's 
pretty easy to go, well, that God isn't really capable. Or that God really isn't loving. If he allows those things, if these things happen, or he's not a very good God, right? All those different things. And so the bottom-up approach is you survey everything around us, right? And you put God on trial, and you go, well, here's all the testimony and all the evidence of your unworthiness. And then our response as a result is going, well, why would we worship you? Why would we trust you? In fact, the only person I know I can trust is just myself. And so then we turn it inward, and we make ourselves our idol. If it's to be, it's up to me. So that's the bottom-up approach. So look around all that kind of stuff, bottom-up, and by the time you get all the way up there and you see all the stuff, you go, yep, God's not worthy of worship. Or the other way, and this is what I'd argue, and what we're going to see today in a teenage girl, is there's the top-down approach. We come to the conclusions about who God is, right? Like, as you look around, you look around, there's literally life around us, green and activity, like all these things. And all these things, by the way, that you can't make or create, right? You can't create more matter. You can take the matter and kind of mix it up, do some kind of recipe and create, and, you know, develop something out of it. But all the stuff all around us, all the beauty all around us. When you look at a God who is always has and always been, if you view him and his uh, glory or his magnitude, right? This massive God. As you view him and you understand who he is, what he said he would do, and you view human history as that, right? A God who decided when he was the triune God, still is, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They had infinite community, infinite worship, infinite love, and they decide that they would make an object, create humans to pour out that love one. Right? When we view God in his perfection, he didn't have to let us into the club. He didn't have to let us breathe or live, right? And he definitely didn't have to, have to work back onto this planet to bring us back to them and what Jesus did. He definitely didn't have to do those things. When we view that God, the God who always was, the God who always will be, and we view him and all that, and the fact that we can actually talk to him and respond to that God, that's a top-down approach. We view God from the top, and then we view all the things around us in light of who God is. That's a, that's a different way to do it. Bottom up, boy, it can be messy. Well, it can create cynicism and skepticism and, and contempt even, right? But the, the top down, we, we start at the top and we work our way down, right? And the difference there is you, you don't start with your circumstances. And why this is so important is what we're going to find today is a story again. Jesus has now been conceived, but he's in the womb. He's in utero and this lady named Mary who's a child, she is a teenager, right? You could be engaged at, as early as 12. So we know she was engaged to a guy named Joseph and all of a sudden she finds out that she is going to birth a baby but not any baby, God as the father, right? Right, could you imagine nannying for the president or for some great celebrity and your worry of how well you'd have to take care of that kid? Imagine knowing that you are carrying inside of you the God of the universe's child. That's Mary, right? And beyond that, um, there's already going to be so many rumors about this stuff of this girl. She's saying that she is a virgin, that this was some kind of immaculate conception. Now imagine the whispers and the rumors and all those things. There's, she is poor. She's wondering if her husband's going to stay with her. So when you view her in light of that, there's a lot of bottom-up stuff that would help her conclude that she should not worship God, that she should not trust God, and this is terrible that God would do this to her, Right? But what you're going to find in teenage girl Mary is a girl who is going to approach God, 
Approach your worry. Approach all those things in light of a top-down approach that God is big and God is glorious and he is in charge. And she's going to lead out of that worship. And what you're going to see is that worship is going to be the thing that alleviates worry. There's plenty of things for her to worry about. And yet you're going to see her filled with gladness and joy. And what Mary was facing 2,000 years ago is much greater than what we're facing right this second. All the different stuff, all the different pain and worries. And yet, she's going to worship. So, what we find ourselves in the story, Mary's traveled 100 miles, probably, by herself as a teenage girl. All the vulnerability that comes with that. And she's you now showed up at her... Um, her relative's house. We don't know if it's a cousin, Aunt Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. We're going to read a lot about John the Baptist in the upcoming weeks, and he's going to be the guy who's going to kind of be the front runner. He's going to be the prophet that says, hey, I can't fix you. I can't save you. Just like I can't fix you. I can't save you. But let me point you to the one who can. Let me remove all the obstacles so that you can see Jesus. So in the same way that John the Baptist in his adult life is going to be a front runner, Elizabeth uh, giving birth to John the Baptist, being in, you know, old, well past her years of being able to, you know, get pregnant to conceive, and yet here she is, six months pregnant. Uh, Elizabeth is going to be the front runner, the forerunner, to prepare Mary for this great and crazy and overwhelming and glorious journey. So Mary has made this trip, and she has interacted with Elizabeth. She is now in community, and we're going to see very clearly this top-down approach that Mary's going to do. Now, what's really neat about this is Mary is 12 to 14, maybe 15. You got to see it. Junior high, middle school, high school, or early freshman, sophomore at the, high, at, at the most, right? And Mary is about to give us, going to give us this presentation top-down of who God is. Now, what's probably likely is Mary is probably completely illiterate. 95% of the men in, in that culture could not read. So there's only a 5% of men, very, very likely that is very much less for any women. So this is a girl who probably can't read or write. And what she's about to do when she breaks out in song, and we get all the words of the song, because we believe Luke probably as an eyewitness when sat and interviewed Mary on these things. We get all the words of the song, right? All the words of the song. And what we're going to see in the song is there's going to be all sorts of um, allusions of Old Testament words right? We're going to see her kind of uh, say some of the same words that Hannah said in the Old Testament. We're going to see pictures of the Psalms from the Old Testament. We're going to see all sorts of different stuff here. We're going to see Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Deuteronomy, Job, First and Second Samuel, all sorts of stuff. These words, this language would have been some of those things. So this is a teenage girl who can't read or write, but has captured these words and this understanding of who God is. So this is a teenage girl, probably pimples and all, who is going to give us this beautiful treatise, theological one, on how and why we should worship. And so, she's interacted with Elizabeth. Elizabeth has spoke blessing over her, spoke life into her, and all of a sudden, Mary's now going to respond. So she showed up. Elizabeth's done most of the talking so far, and all of a sudden, Mary's going to Break out, uh, break out in song, right? So this is high school musical, maybe middle school musical, you know, Luke edition. And so Mary's going to open her mouth, and what's going to come out of her is worship, attention and focus on God. And so here we find ourselves in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And you, we're going to walk through this pretty methodically. The same way that Luke wrote it, we're going to read it, and this is what it says. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord. Okay? 
<laughs> so interesting. We're, we're only a few words in, and so much to think about. So Mary has all the reasons why she shouldn't be excited, right? All the fears and worries of how she's going to take care of this baby, pay for this baby, whether or not she's going to have a husband when she gets back to Nazareth, all those things, right? I mean, tons of deep fear and worry. I mean, even in that culture, if someone was caught in adultery, they would be drugged out on their front porch, right? And all the men would throw stones at them and they had the right to murder this girl. So she's got to go, okay, is my life even going to be lost as a result of this? So all these reasons to bottom up go, God, how in the world can you do this? Why me? Woe is me? All these things. But that's not what she says. Her first words are my soul, right? That's, uh, that's the Greek word suke, right? Which is uh, where we get psychology from, right? And so it you know, in that sense, it means studying of the mind, but not just about the mind, but the behavior as a result of your mind. And the reason you talk about your mind and that is because that's the one thing that, that is inward, right? Right here, all that stuff is, you can have all that stuff and be all those things. And you are basically who you are as a result of what you think and how you process and what's going on here. And so she's going to use the word soul there. And so here's the way I would describe that is, you know, that part of you that gets anxious or, you know, the part of you that can't sleep at night. The part of you who feels really sad, even when no one else is around, so there's no performance in it. Part of you that gets in despair. Part of you that laughs when something's funny. That, that, that part of you that, you know, there's some, some tears that start rolling down your eyes even when you're watching a TV show. That's the result of something in you, right? That you're thinking and processing. That's what this is. This is her essence. This is her being. So she goes everything I am, right? Everything I am. Now, that part of you, right, that part of you that, well, I would argue would live forever. That part of you, right, that's what she's saying. That being in me, it starts in my mind, and it then transforms my behavior, right? What we think about is eventually what we end up uh, believing and doing, right? And so that part of she's going, my suke, the psychological part of you, right? The part that, uh, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years people have been studying and you know, all those kind of things. That part of you, that part of you that understands why you do what you do, that part of you that defines your purpose and meaning in life, right? All those things. That part of you, she's going, that in me, it has a goal, and the goal is to magnify that word. I love it, love it, love it. Uh, that's, I think, what worship really is. So I think worship is definitely beyond singing. Magnify literally doesn't mean you make anything any bigger, right? It's already as big as it's going to be. If I take a magnifying glass and put it on top of this text, the text is actually still the same size. It just makes it easier for me to see and read and comprehend. So there's something about this magnification that doesn't make God any bigger. You cannot make God bigger, right? So God's not like, you worship me so I can feel bigger and better about myself. No, there's something about worship as you worship that makes him seem bigger, that you can see him better. He's not bigger, but it turns our focus and attention on him. So uh, uh, as we worry for us personally, our solution to that worry is going to be magnifying God, looking towards God, paying attention to God. So part of this dealing with uncertainty is how do we turn our focus on God and who he is. And so what happens here is Mary's going to go, my soul magnifies the Lord. And so as you think about the magnification, okay, what is she doing? She's going, I need to see God as he really is. I can't see him that well. So let me magnify it so I can bring it all to the forefront so I can see it all. And so what's going to happen now, and sorry about this, Mary is going to give us what I believe is about 16 things that we see as a result of magnifying God. What she sees as she magnifies in worship, she's going to present to us this 
this God, this top-down God. We view God and then view our circumstances in light of God. We worship God for who he is, not for what he's done, right? So this is a genie in a bottle. So she's going to get my soul magnifies the Lord. So got lots of bad circumstances, all the reasons why she shouldn't worship. She's probably exhausted. First trimester, she's just shown up. You would think she'd go, can I have some water? I need to lay down. I need to take him in that nap. Instead, she engages with Elizabeth. Elizabeth speaks blessing, and her response is to can, uh, immediately put the focus on God. And so what we're going to see here is Mary, theological, going to give us a real understanding. Teenage, illiterate Mary is going to give us a real understanding of who God is. And this is really, really important. Because if we could see God for who he is, then all of a sudden we could see our circumstances in light of that God and his power and his might. And so the first thing she says is, you see this? My soul magnifies the Lord. So what you're going to see, and we're just going to work through this orderly, is Mary is going to give us a nice historical lesson about who God is. So she's going to give us a rundown of who God is. And you see the first one she says, my soul magnifies the who? The Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. In the Greek, that means boss. He, she's going, yes, my circumstances are crazy, but I'm not responsible for them, right? I'm not the one who's going to give an account for all the circumstances in the world. God is the one in charge. He is bending and shaping all things. So her first focus in terms of magnification, in terms of worshiping God, her first thing to say is God is boss. He is Lord. He is master. He is in control, and he gets all the rights. So she is in her worship. The very first thing she's doing is she's taking the responsibility for all things in the world off of her plate and giving it to the right for owner, the one who actually can handle this. So her first view of God is, God, you're powerful, you're mighty, I see you and all those things, and you are Lord. I need to remind myself that you are Lord. You're the boss. You're in control of all these things. So the first thing she says is, God is Lord, right? God is Lord. And this is what she says next, verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Really neat thing there. That word spirit is just the word, it's pneuma. You might be familiar with it. It literally means breath. It's so beautiful, so beautiful. When you think about when God created Adam and Eve in the very beginning in the garden, right? So crazy. So six days, five days, he's created all the beauty in all the world, right? He, birds, skies, stars, all those things. He puts it all together to show his might and his power and his beauty and his, his um, sovereignty, all those things, right? And then all of a sudden he decides to create man in his image and he forms this beautiful human. By the way, fully mature human. Is he one day old? Is he 30 years old? Whatever it is, it's so complicated, right? He creates a mature earth, trees in the garden, mature man. And before Adam lived, he was dead. You, you get that, right? Like he, he was dead. He was a dead being. He was just this bag of bones and flesh and chemicals just laying on the ground. And the way by which Adam got life is God, hear this, breathed that life in him. That breathed in the way that real life happens. We were dead. He was dead. And all of a sudden, the way by which he had real life, real life, right, was God breathed that life in him. Right? We see this in Ezekiel where there's these dry dead bones and there's this breath that comes over and then there's life, right? And when you see in the New Testament, this movement that happens as God goes, hey, 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 wait on me and I will breathe my breath. That's the Holy Spirit over you, right? All of a sudden, you were dead. You were just a bag of bones, like living for your flesh. And then all of a sudden, God breathes life in this. Breathes life. And all of a sudden, the way you view the world, the way you see it is like this new, like reborn pneuma, this spirit. And she, so she goes, my spirit, that part of me that God infuses in me, Holy Spirit, that God infuses in me, my spirit rejoices 
magnifies, no rejoicing, celebrating. See what it says? In God, my Savior. So she gives us another one. God is not only Lord, he's Savior. Meaning not only is he in charge, he's the one that's going to deliver us. Okay, God, I don't know what this means. I'm pregnant with your child. It's so complicated. People are judging me. They're talking about me. But God, 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 I believe that you are Savior, meaning I believe that you will make a way where there is no way. So she is seeing God, top down, right? God is not only the Lord, not only is he the boss, but it's good that he's the boss because he actually can deliver me. He can get me from where I am to where I need to be, right? That's what a Savior does. He is going to pay the price that I cannot pay, right? He's going to do that through Jesus. Jesus is going to live the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, right? So she goes, not only is he Lord, but he is Savior. My soul sees him as Savior, right? And that's just pretty simple. Like, when we think about our world and we think about a possibility of a perfect and holy God and we think about our longing for a world that feels a lot different than this one. And we go, but how in the world would we get there? Right? We can't even get to Florida without a GPS. Right? How in the world would we be delivered into heaven? Right? This is what I love when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but, but by me. And one of the things that we hear all the time is, that is so dogmatic and arrogant. No, 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 no. It's just specific. He is giving us very clear directions. He's going, I am Savior. The way you get to God for all eternity is through me. You can't make it. You can't build the bridge. You can't do it. You can't get into that other place. But you know your soul longs for it. That thing you're longing for is there. But the only way you get there is through me. Only way you get there is through a Savior. So she's going, God is Lord, and he is Savior. He'll deliver you. You know, another thing I point out here, and this is really important because it's Mary saying it, is there's this false doctrine that somehow Mary is God, a deity, and that she's sinless. The reality is if she's sinless, she doesn't need a Savior. So we just get in this picture that even Mary, we value her, we celebrate her, but we don't see her as God or deity because she is going, I, too, need a Savior. In other, way, in other words, I can't get there either. Someone else has to deliver me. Verse 48, it says this. For he looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now all generations will call me blessed really important so the next thing you see here is that god is a little bit smaller because of the length of the word providential you see that it literally says he looked Look, you see this? This is so important. When, when you hear that word providence, I tell you all the time, I want you to see an eyeball, that God sees all things. Literally, hear, hear this. She's saying, God is looking at me. He sees me. I mean, regardless of your circumstances, God sees you. Like, he sees you. Like, he sees your pain. He sees your worry. He sees your checkbook balancing. He sees all those things, right? And so when we see this God who is perfect and mighty, and we can't think of him like us, that he can only be one place one time. He can be all places at all times. But I want you to see this as God is providential, meaning God is seeing everything. And not only is he seeing everything, he's working in everything, meaning he is going to look. He is looking at where we are in our humble state. He's seeing us. That word humble means lowly even. Like this, um, this neediness is where the word comes from, right? Like this neediness, like that literally it is in beyond Mary's um, ability to reconcile and solve all the problems that she has in her life right now. Completely beyond it. And it says right here that she, he sees her. Not only does he see her, he's working and he's doing it with compassion. So when she sees it, she goes, God, God is seeing all things. God is seeing all things, right? And then it says, for behold, from now all generations will call me 
blessed. Another thing you need to see about God is God is not only providential, He's generous. He's generous. So she sees, he sees her in her lowly state. She is vulnerable and weak, tired, and as she's worshiping God because she sees that and knows that he's working in this moment, he wastes nothing. God sees COVID. He sees the economy. He sees the brokenness and racial injustice. He, he sees all those things. But not only does he see them, he's working in them. And here's what you've got to understand about the God who sees and works. He is doing it for, I'll tell you all the time, he's bending and shaping all things for our good and his glory. So concurrently, simultaneously, he's doing things for our good. So she goes, now I know he sees it, and guess what he sees? He sees this, and he is going to be generous. And he's going to, uh, for generations, people are going to call me blessed. This is interesting, because right now people are going to start whispering about it. Hey, where's Mary? I heard she's pregnant. Joseph, wait, they weren't married. Who's the, da- who's the dad? Like all these, this, this shot at her reputation. And here's the thing, if she worships her reputation, she's devastated right now, right? Now that's an idol, but she's not. So she's worshiping. And so what she's saying is, hey, here's really anything. She's in the long game that God is seeing this. And as a result of this, he will bless me and I will call, be called blessed. See that? For all generations that has the implications that it means all races for all people on the earth now and in perpetuity for generations. When that word's used plural, it means basically from this point forward. Here we are 2,000 years celebrating this story. Mary was blessed. It didn't seem like it in the moment. You don't want what happened to Mary, I don't think, but she was blessed in this deal. So God is generous. He sees her in her humble state, and he gives her dignity. He defines her, uncovers her value as his child, right? Love what it says in Psalm 45. Uh, Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear, for the king is enthralled by your beauty, this idea that he's captivated by it, right? He's captivated, so he is generous, and he pours out his dignity on his people. He esteems us. He gives us value, and continues and says this, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. See what's next. Not only is God Lord, Savior, providential, generous, but he's mighty, so we don't uh, uh, bottom up. We look at our world and go, there's no solutions. Top down, we go, wait, God is all-powerful and all-capable. He is mighty, meaning there is not a problem he can't solve. There's not a problem he's not going to solve. He is peering into our future. He is stepping down into our timeline, and he will fix it. So he says, and God is mighty, mighty. And here's the reason I know, because he has already done great things, right? So I have seen the works of his hand. He is mighty. So top down, do you believe that? Do you believe God is it overwhelmed by COVID? Or by the problems in our world or the problems in your marriage or the problems in your family? You think he goes, oh gosh, I don't have a plan. No, no, no. She is viewing him and going, God will orchestrate things in his way, but he is all powerful and there's nothing that's beyond his ability to fix. Right? So God is mighty. But I want you to see the next part. This one's really, really important. For he who is mighty has done great things. See those next two words? for me. Right? So important. Mary is going, hey, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. God is mighty. He's done great things for me. See that? God is personal. 
so big and so powerful, and yet, like, he sees you and knows you. It says he knows the number of hairs on your head. For some of you, that's easier than others, right? Like, so he sees you and knows you. He is personal. Like, he is a God who cares about you. Hear me. Now, if you don't believe any of this stuff, it's still true. The God of the universe is seeing all these things. He's working all things. He's bending and shaping all things for our good, your good, and his glory. He sees you. And one day, if your eyes are open, that you'll look back and you'll see that God was always seeing you. He was always walking with you. Like, he sees you because you, you matter to him. So when Mary goes, for he did these things for me, he is personal, like he is so big and mighty, and yet he is so caring and loving and gracious that he is in your corner, and he sees you, and he knows you. He knows your innermost thoughts, and he loves you, right? He sees the depths of your heart, right? And he still loves you because he sees you, you, right? So, so he is mighty. He's personal, and you see the next part of that, and holy is his name, right? Holy. He's holy. Holy. That means he's without sin. That means he is uniquely other from us. He is, he, while we, he made us in his image, he is perfect and blameless. He does nothing wrong. He is perfect. He's never done anything unjust. He never will do anything unjust. And this is so beautiful because a lot of us are trouble, right, in terms of our circumstances. Some of us think that um, God's not real or loving. Others of us think that God uh, couldn't love us, right? In fact, one of the questions that gets asked a lot is, God punishing me? God punishing me. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. I get why you can experience that because there's, that you reap what you sow, right? If you drink too much, your liver will be a mess, right? But that's not God punishing. That's just the reality of our world. When we choose our own path, we experience the pain of that path. But that's not God punishing you, right? The reason I know is because God actually put Jesus up on a cross, right? He punished Jesus for what you did and I did. Like the wages of our sin was death, right? That's what we deserve, but we don't get it because Jesus gets it. So when we go, God, is God punishing me? No, no, he can't punish you because he's holy, and holy means he is not unjust. And so punishing you and punishing Jesus for the same exact thing makes no sense. Like that's double jeopardy, and God is perfectly just. Right now, eventually, you may say to God you want nothing to do to hit with him for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity. And you'll get your wish, right? And you'll experience the pain and the sorrow of what it looks like not to have Jesus be that covering for you. But God is not punishing you today, right? Your path that you're on maybe calls on you some pain. But there's even solution to that. Remember, praise is our solution to pain. Looking at God from the top and seeing him as perfect and loving and gracious and personal, right? And so he is holy. He is different than us. He is perfect. He's never, ever and never will do anything wrong, right? So he is holy. And then it says this, verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Next thing you see here is God is merciful. Just kind of told you a little bit about that. It says the wages of our sin is death. That means there is a consequence we deserve to pay. And by definition, mercy means not paying the consequences you deserve to pay. Not paying them, right? We deserve to pay them. And God goes, no, 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 no. You're my child. I love you. I am the only one capable of fixing this. You can't even fix it anyway. And so what God does in his mercy, he, he, he says, no, no, no. I don't want you to pay the price. I see it top down. He's not wanting to punish you. In fact, he loves you so much, but he's so perfect and just, he understood that there's this tension and goes, well, I got to make sure justice happens for all things. I'm a holy God. 
and there is a consequence to pay for not, not following, not trusting, for being defiant and disrespectful, right? You know that. You want a judge to not just skirt the laws and just go, ah, it's not a big deal. You killed someone. Just go live your life, right? There is a consequence to pay for that defiance. So there's that. And on the other side of the tension is, so God is all just and perfect. And so there's consequence to play. On the other side of it is it says that God is all love. And there is a tension there. Wait, if God is all loving, then he wouldn't want to hurt anybody. He'd want everybody to have a seat at the table. He'd be forgiving, right? But at the same time, he's just. And so the tension of that is solved. And Jesus actually stepping in and paying the price because he's just and inviting us because he's loving back to the table. And so when it says this, she goes, he is in his mercy for those who fear him. And this is the next part, and I think it's so beautiful that Mary tells us this, and here's what I, how I define that is, God is worthy. He's worthy. He is worthy. Absolutely, 100% worthy. Mean, meaning, he deserves our fear and our reverence. He is perfect. This world only happens because he spoke into existence. If he decided it would be over today, it would be. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He is providential. He sees all things, but he is, he is worthy. Like, the, we have a hard time with this because you go, yeah, I don't really want to worship because I don't want to worship some god or whatever those things are. And the, the, the belief is that God's not any better than we are. That's silly. And we kind of have these pictures, and one of the problems is God talks about being a good father, and you have some understanding of what a father is, and going, well, if it's a father, I want nothing to do with it. And because our understanding is that all fathers can be broken or whatever it is. No, 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 no. He is uniquely holy and different, and he is merciful, and he is gracious, but he is worthy, meaning he's the God of the universe. We don't exist without him. He created photosynthesis. Every time you breathe in, you're breathing in life. Every time you breathe out, you're breathing out life, right? That God who orchestrated all those things, he is worthy. So she goes, eh, there's fear from generation to generation. He is responding to those who finally are looking up and going, top down, God is worthy. It's not, my circumstances don't define who God is. God defines who he is. He is worthy. Now watch this, verse 51. He has shown strength with his harm. Uh, he's, he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. So hear, hear me here. He has shown strength in his arm. Now we've already covered uh, might, right? So powerful, mighty. That's already covered. But there's a picture here. It says he's shown strength with his arm. This is really, really neat. That means that God is in, hear me, arm's reach. Got me? God is, God is in arm's reach. In other words, God, Mary sees this, is near. He's not in some faraway place. He's near. And in fact, at that moment, he was in, in the form of Jesus, in her belly. God is near right? He's right next to you. And says this, when two or more are gathered in his name, when two or more are gathered in his name, which by the way, that's what we're doing right now. You and I cross, you know, maybe not in the same living room, but we're gathered. And why are we gathered? In his name. He says that he is present, particularly for the sake of unity. He is present, meaning he is near. You don't have to go searching for God. He's there, right? You just got to look up top down and go, God is here. He is near, like he is close to you, right? Because he's a personal God and he is near. So he has shown strength with his arms. You see that next part of this? And it says this. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. So as God is near, he's using his arms and he is completely in control. 
completely in control. He's, he's, he's bending and shaping all things. So he's using his hands. He is working in all things. He's providential. But the other thing about that is, he's, here's the word for it, is he's sovereign. Sovereign in its sense. Like if you talk about a sovereign nation, it's, it's this. It's the full right and power of a governing body over itself without any interference from outside sources. He has full authority. God is fully in authority, meaning whatever he decides, it will happen. And because we know he's good, good things will happen, right? So he is sovereign. Mary's going, I am pregnant. This is chaos, but he is sovereign. He is a sovereign Lord. He is, he is near, and he is mighty, and he is in control, and he has all the rights and all the authority in the world that he created. No one is greater than God. No one is in charge but God. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. But it says this, he has, and it goes, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state, right? He's brought down the mighty. No one's a king but Jesus. No one's king but God. God is sovereign, and he's exalted those in a humble state. Again, that word humble it means in a, um, in a lowly or a needy state. And so what we see is he is gracious. He is literally looking at people that are needy. He's looking at people that need hope and peace and a seat back at the table. He's looking at people who probably made some decisions in their life that have wrecked them. And so we talk about God being merciful. That means he's not requiring us to pay the price we deserve to pay. He's not going to make you pay the consequences. Jesus paid those. But that's just one part of God. He's also not just mercy. Mercy is not having to pay what you deserve to pay. Then there's another part of who God is. He's not just merciful. He's gracious. And grace literally means you get a free gift you don't deserve. No, you got to open it. You got to receive it. But you get it, right? You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't throw money at it. You can't throw morality at it, right? It is gracious. It's just a gift from God. And so he goes, hey, and he exalted those. He brought dignity and he gave them the gift of being exalted in his presence, right? So this is grace of God. Not only do we not have to pay the consequences of our sin, right? We don't have to pay the punishment. We don't have to go to hell. We don't have to do those things. At the same time, we also get this gift, which is Jesus with us forever, right? For all eternity, that soul that lives forever, that comes with us. So God is gracious to those in need. He's gracious. God's gracious. And he says this, he has filled the hungry with good things. Ah, oh, so gracious. And the rich, he has sent away empty. You see that? He has filled the hungry with good things. We see there is God is just. Right? God is just. He is seeing people who are hungry and he's filling them. He's seeing people that are hungry and he's going to be just. He's going to meet their needs. Right? There is this social justice part of God because he's going, this is my kingdom and I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven back to earth, right? That everyone should eat and everyone should be loved and everyone should be in a home and have a home and be cared for and that everybody should be valued, right? Everybody should be seen in God's image. And so God is looking out in our world and seeing the pain and the suffering of it. And he, it says he is, he's just, he's not losing sight of all those things. He is just, he is feeding them. And just quick sidebar, how do you think he does that? You think he drops food out of the sky? Did that in the Old Testament, but that's not happening. So if God is just, and we want people to see God is just, then how, how does that happen, guys? Right? The way that it happens is the same way that Jesus entered this world. Through Mary. Through human form. Through a medium in a human Right, the way that God 
inserted himself into this world was through a human. The way by which God wants to insert his justice is through humans. The way by which hungry people are fed is through his people. Those who start top down going, God, you are worthy of my worship and I want to magnify you with my soul. And one of the ways I want to magnify you is I want to meet the needs of those around us that can't see you because they're starving or can't see you because they're in pain, can't see you because they're hungry or they're cold, right? And so the way by which we honor God and magnify him, not because we want to earn his, our salvation, he's already given that to us. But as a result of magnification, as a result of worship, part of worship is not just singing, so you want to know how God feeds the hungry? It's worship. Top-down worship. But it's worship by being his hands and feet. Right? It tells us in Romans chapter 12. In view of God's mercy. Top-down. Right? View of God's mercy. What should we do? We should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That, um, uh, view of God's mercy. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. For that is what's holy and pleasing to God. Right? That is what's logical. That is our act of worship, is giving ourselves back to him. And so we look at this, we go, God is just. And his solution for that justice is his, his people who are worshiping him in, in word and deed. Right now, we got to re-kind of re, um, change our viewpoint and go, how in the world do we love people and bring justice to a broken world? How do we feed those who are hungry? Right? And that isn't, hey, how does CLC put together some initiatives to make that happen? In your worship, individually, God, now what, what, you can do it. We can help, right? God is calling you the same way he called Mary to usher in the kingdom and usher in a savior. God and his justice is calling us to usher that in through us. So how can, what is God wanting you to do? So for Christians, did you ask God that? Did you hear from God and do it? And he says, by the way, there, for those of us who are non-Christian on this, watching this right now, you have no problem with that, right? You go, that's actually what I'd be curious to see. I'd love to see people actually love people. If they say that God is loved, then why don't, why don't Christians love people and serve people and care for people, right? So God is just. But I want you to see the next part of it. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. See that, that word, help? It's really interesting because God shouldn't have to help, right? God shouldn't. He's big and mighty, and he gave us life. Why, would, why does he need to keep intervening other than he is so gracious and willing to help? In other words, what Mary is saying here is God is humble. You see, uh, pride is, you know, C.S. Lewis says this way, pride is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. You want to know how you think of yourself less often? It's really easy. Put that focus on thinking of other people, right? God is, uh, hum humility is not uh, thinking of yourself less, right? Jesus was humble, but he didn't think less of himself. But he thought of himself less often because he was, uh, he was moved with compassion because the people around him were, were like a sheep without a shepherd, is what the scriptures say. And so God decides to serve, right? So God decides to help. Humility is helping. Going, no, no, my time is worth it for me to serve you, care for you. So God is going, no, no, I'm going to help, right? I'm going to help. So we're talking about this God who is just and God who is humble. He's showing us kind of what our, our way to worship here. God is just. We've got to help bring justice to the world around us, right? God is humble. He decides to help when he shouldn't have to, but he decides to, right? The definition of humility in my mind is people who think of others often, 
right? People who serve others often. The people who don't, and pride is grabbing people's attention, having people turn the focus on you. Humility is turning the focus on those around you. And God helps those who helped the servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In verse 55, it says this, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So Mary is wrapping up her song. And he says, he spoke to our fathers, generation ahead, to Abraham. That goes all the way back to Genesis 11, God's covenant that he says, if you read through the scriptures, Genesis 1 through 10 is humans just wrecking it over and over again. You got the story of the flood. You got Cain and Abel. You got the Tower of Babel. And then finally in Genesis 11, God goes, hey, 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 I'm gonna give you a covenant that there's nothing you could do to make me love you less and I will always be your God and I will always be with you. In other words, God is saying, and Mary's saying, God is always and always will be. God is faithful. From beginning to end, God is always gonna do what he says he's gonna do. God has looked at generations. He's still bending and shaping. He is near and he's working and all those things. So God is faithful. But you see what else it says? It says, and to his offspring, see that next word? Forever forever. In other words, God is eternal. God will always be this way. So God is eternal, right? So that means that God will eternally be Lord. God will eternally be Savior. God will eternally be providential and generous and mighty and personal and holy and merciful and worthy and near and sovereign and gracious and just and humble and faithful. God is those things and forevermore will be those things. Like this is just who God is. He wants to be near. He's loving. He is gracious. He's all those things and he is near. And so Mary's given this proclamation, right? And then she wraps up the song declaring that for eternity, that's who God will be. So then, now all of a sudden, she views everything in light of that eternity, right? So she views her pain. She views her sorrow. She views her reputation in light of eternity. Like for generations, people will call me blessed. Here we are 2,000 years later. She went viewing it in that day or that week or that month. She's viewing it in light of eternity. And I am convinced that all the brokenness and the sadness and the pain in our world is solved in eternity, right? If you think about it, if you imagine all the sand on all the seashores, right? And you're to take all of it, and you're to compile it all. You can't. You couldn't, but if you could, like, if you can take it all, and you're to take one little bitty flack of sand, that would represent, like, maybe your life on earth. And all the other sand would represent eternity, right? And even that's not a good comparison, because it's, a, it's, a, it's infinitely greater than that. And so what Mary is saying here is, God will be God forever. And there may be some pain and some sorrow. The way that Jesus says it, in this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world, right? So there's this invitation into that eternal life. So there is some pain. But top down goes, one day all that will be made right. One day every tear will dry up. Everything sad will become unsad, right? He will fix all things in eternity. So God is viewing now in light of all those things, and he is bending and shaping everything now for our good and his glory and for the opportunity for us to live with him forever. So Mary responds in song, and it seems kind of weird. It's kind of anticlimactic. She breaks down the song, and then Luke doesn't want to talk to us much about what happens next. Here's all he says. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Hmm. Ten verses of a song. And then Luke just gives us, yeah, she breaks out in song that first day and she stays there for three months. And then she goes home. Right? 
So this worship, she worships God, and she reminds herself of who God is, and it's in those things, that moment, that she reminds herself of who God is, and as a result of reminding herself of who God is, eventually she goes, I can go back and face the problems in my world. So she's going to go back home. She's not going to know that Joseph was scheming to divorce her quietly. She's going to hear the stories of what people are saying about her and her baby, and she's going to hear all the murmurs. She's going to have to face her parents and all this. There's all sorts of really terrible possibilities and circumstances that she's walking back into. And you go, how in the world would she do that? Well, she spent three months worshiping him. She just worshiped him. So here's what I want you to hear here. In all that worship, so far, her circumstances haven't changed. She's still pregnant. She's still a child. She still doesn't know how she's going to financially support him. Nothing changes about her circumstances. And here's what I want you to hear, right? When your circumstances can't change, and the reality is for a lot of us, our circumstances can't. Right? That diagnosis isn't going away. Your kids aren't going back to school. Whatever those things are. That job is not going to return. Whatever those things. There are things that we just have to face and go, my circumstances can't change. But when your circumstances cannot change, your perspective has to. Your perspective has to. And the way by which you change your perspective is to stop looking from bottom up but start looking from top down to see things as God sees it and see all things in light of God. He is near and he is close and he has a plan. And here's the best part of all that. He's not looking for you to fix it. He's not looking for you to fix anything. He's looking for you to turn your eyes on him, to focus on him, to trust him right? To trust that he is going to make a way where there's no way. And so if you don't, have never believed this and you go, wait, wait, that makes sense. If that's the kind of God, how do I know him? Here's the only thing about that. He did all the work for that. He sent a son in the form of a baby to live a perfect life, to demonstrate these, these, to personify all these things, to show that he is love and gracious and kind and all those things. And he demonstrated all that, that while we were still sinners, God sent his son to die for us. He literally paid the price so that you can know him and be close to him and draw near to him as he has already drawn near to you. And for the first time, maybe that's it. You just, that light switch flips and you go, I can worship that God. I need that God because I've worshiped all sorts of other things and they have left me wanting and unfulfilled. They cannot fulfill me and they definitely haven't been able to forgive me. If you're telling me that God can and he can make things right, it's really, here's what it says. It's so crazy. The Bible tells us whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord has a Savior. And all that means is you're just right now where you are, just telling God that you want him to be boss of your life, to tell him that you believe that he is God and Lord and that Jesus is Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, going, God, I want you to be boss. I want you to have power of eternity. I want you to be in control. I want to lean into you and discover you and worship you. I want, I want those things. Here's what happens. The Bible says that in an instant you are saved. You're made right and holy. And that breath of God is going to be breathed into you. And you might not feel it or experience it every now, but you, as you move forward, that's just what will happen to you. That's what will happen to you. So what's about to happen is we're going to sing a song, and it's so beautiful. It says, not us, but about Christ in us, that Christ does all this work. And that's what just happened to you. Christ just did that work in you. Not you, but Christ in you. And I just would offer, if that's you, would you just let us know would you just let us know? You can fill out the Connect card on our website. You can click and do that. You can click contact, or you can email me personally and go josh at clcfamily.church. You can just go, I just called him Lord. Would you, would you let us know so we can walk with you in that? Would, would you let us know? Jesus is Lord. Top down. Our perspective has to change. We see God is in charge and Lord when our circumstances can't. Would you let us know? And would you join me in singing this last song? 
thanks for joining us today at CLC Online. Um, If there's any prayer requests, want to talk some more, have some questions, want to let us know that you're going, I really want to trust Jesus with my life. Um, In the description, there's a little place you can click on the connect card and you can just fill it out. Or if you can't find it there, have a hard time, you can go to clcfamily.church, click on signups, you'll be able to fill out the connect card there. If even all that's complicated, just email me at josh at clcfamily.church and Molly on our staff would be able to help get that to the right place, all those things. So please, please, please let us know. Also, if you got questions about the sermon, that was a lot. Uh, all sorts of different attributes of who God is. Uh, you can always ask questions. You can fill it out on the connect card. You can write them there. Or you can just email overtime at clcfamily.church. Ask your question, and we'll cover it this Tuesday in our overtime podcast where we talk more about this sermon. And you don't have to watch it live. That's at noon or noonish every Tuesday. You can always catch it later in the week. But that's it. You guys have a great week as you view God from the top and worship him and then view everything else in light of him. Love you guys. See you later.